So this will be our last class on uh, baptism for, for this particular study. So, uh, so if you would, let's read that question that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, that's question number 74 of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 884. Question 74, I'll ask uh, the question and ask that you respond with the answer. Should infants also be baptized? Yes. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant people, and they no less than adults are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. All right, so last week uh, I said that there were uh, really four reasons uh, that I wanted to go through that the Heidelberg Catechism gives us. Uh, for why the children of believers should be baptized. Uh, the first was covenant. The second was promise. The third is that they're distinguished. And then the fourth is continuity. That is continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. Uh, we looked at the first two. We looked at covenant and we looked at promise last week. And so uh, this week, this morning, we will uh, look at the second final two that they are distinguished, and uh, the reason of continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. All right, so I ended last week uh, really by making the claim that it's not a liability that Christian children grow up in Christian homes and have the benefit of hearing the Christian gospel proclaimed to them from their earliest age. Um, and that leads us then to the third uh, point here that Heidelberg makes, is, and that is that um, the children of believers are, by nature, distinguished. They're different. Uh, that, that by baptism, which is the sign of the covenant, uh, Heidelberg says, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. Uh, now, one important text that we think about and that should come to mind when we start thinking about the fact that the children of believers are distinguished is a text like 1 Corinthians 7, 14, because that's exactly what it says. It says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Hold, hold your questions just for a moment. So what Paul is doing here is that he is making a distinction between the children of believers and the children of unbelievers. Now, what that holiness entails... You know, we can talk about what that particular me particularly means because there's different ways that being holy can be described in the scriptures. But the fact uh, remains, as Paul says right here, that the children of 
believers are, in some sense, holy. David, did you have a question? Well, are you saying that that is the basis for which you can say that children of believers are members of the covenant? No. So we made an argument that they were members of the covenant because that's, that's the continuity that we saw earlier with the nature of the covenant itself, right? As the covenant is proclaimed, right, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant as it's reiterated with Israel and continues to be reiterated throughout the scriptures, always comes with this, this promise is for you and for your children. It's, it's always speaking generationally like that. This, I'm simply saying, is, is saying that the children who are part of the covenant, who are heirs to the promise, are distinguished uh, from unbelievers. Yeah, Heather. What about non-believers who take their children to church to be christened because that is, quote, a thing you do? We'll get, we'll get to that a little bit in a minute. Maybe not directly, but hopefully we'll come around back and, and deal with that. But if I don't answer it, ask me again. <laughs> All right. Uh, and, and I want to bring up a point that we brought up last week as well, um, which is if we're going to say that the children of believers are not distinguished that they're not part of the covenant. There, there isn't something that's different about them that, than the children of unbelievers. Then why again do we have passages like Ephesians 6, 1 that we looked at last week, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. There's, there's something that is distinguished about the children of believers, you know, we get the same thing in Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And so right there, we have the children of believers having an imperative placed upon them. Do this particular thing, which is obey your parents. And it pleases the Lord. Who wants to please the Lord? Who is called to please the Lord but God's people? Right? Is it pleasing to the Lord when unbelievers, unbelieving children, obey their parents? Now, that's a little bit slippery, right? Because there's a certain sense generally, but ultimately, no. Right? We already talked about that in terms of the distinction between good works of the believer and good works of the unbeliever. Yet here it's being said that the, that the children of believers who do this good work of, of believing their, or, or listening to their parents, obeying their parents, actually pleases the Lord. It's a beautiful thing in his sight. When the children of believers take on the commandments of Jesus and do them, all right, so the children of believers being distinguished. Um, in, outside of a Presbyterian, Pado, uh, baptist world, there's also this desire, and if you come from a wider evangelical world, you, you, you've seen this, 
There's this desire to distinguish our children. And in that context, it's often done through uh, baby dedications. Right? So we, wanna, we, want, we, wanna do so, we don't want to baptize our kids, but we need to show that they're distinguished. Because by nature, we know that our children are distinguished. So there's this thing, uh, pretty common, done of baby dedication. Yet, it's interesting to me in thinking about baby dedication, the fact that there's no express command for such ritual, nor any indication that it should be the normative experience or the normative practice in the church, nor does the modern practice which seeks to emulate a ritual that was done for particular people at a particular time, the modern practice doesn't include the pattern that would have been included in that normal uh, ceremonial purification that would have accompanied this dedication. Right? When Jesus is taken to the temple to be dedicated, it's also in the context of Mary bringing sacrifices and having been unclean because of giving birth, she would have to go back and present herself to the priest who would declare her clean. And I have yet to see that during a baby dedication. Sorry, I'm being a little bit, I'm, I'm being a little bit feisty here, but I'm just, I, I want to make the point that, that that's one of those things that seems to be inconsistent. So what is the draw to such a ceremony? Isn't it, it's the fact that our children are different. And, and we know that our children are different. And, and there's an important way that we need to understand the difference, the distinction. Right? It's not to say that our children are different by nature. Right? When we baptize our children, we declare, right? We, we say, yes, we know that our children are sinners. We know that they are totally depraved just like us. And we know that they need the gospel of Jesus. And if they don't have faith in Jesus, they cannot be saved. But what we do say is what scripture says, that they are holy. That they're, they're distinguished from the world. And I'll get into some of those ways that they're distinguished. But we also say that they're part of the covenant. And we also say that they're heirs to the promise. G.I. Williamson uh, helps here in his uh, commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism to help us understand what is this distinguishedness that we're talking about. He says, There is a difference by grace, and God has graciously chose, chosen to be our God to us and to our children. That is why there's a difference between our children and other children. The difference is that our children are brought up within the Lord's congregation. From the very first beginnings of life, they are in the way of the saving ordinances. They are under the word and sacraments. In a true church of Christ, they will come to know the way of salvation. And that is not true by far of the children of unbelievers. How does anyone come to faith in Jesus? Regeneration. So on the, on the divine side, we have God's uh, sovereign work of regeneration. 
What about on the human side? David. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so what distinguishes these children is the grace, the context of grace that they grow up in, also known as the covenant, right? They grow up hearing over and over again and seeing over and over again those ordinary means by which God saves sinners, right? And so we don't assume that our children are elect and regenerate, right? That's not what baptism is doing. It's not assuming that they're regenerate. But nor, on the other hand, should we assume the opposite. We should not assume that they're unregenerate, right? We don't live on assumptions, but upon the promise of our covenant God who is faithful, Our covenant God who preserves his church through the generations, right? This is the promise for you and for your children and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, right? The one who is far off. That's a promise to them that if they believe, they will be saved. And they are going to be baptized and brought into the covenant community. They enter the covenant community from the outside. But for those who are baptized and believe the promise that was declared to them when they were baptized, they enter into that covenant promise from the inside. And so what do we mean that the children of believers are holy? Well, obviously we don't mean a couple of things, right? We don't mean that they have been fully sanctified, right? That our children are gleaming white. We know that's not true. Right? Because it's not true of us. Right? But what are we saying? What does it mean to be holy? Yeah. If we're talking about holiness in, a, in its most basic general sense, our children are set apart. Right? They're set apart from the world. They're set apart from the children of unbelievers. You know, when little Silas goes and talks to his, his neighbor kid that doesn't go to church... And says, do you know what it means to worship idols? And his, his neighbor kids say, I have no idea. There's a distinction there. You know, right? And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why we say that, yes, indeed, the children of believers should be baptized. Because they are distinguished from the world. All right, number four, continuity. So we have two statements here in Heidelberg. Uh, It says, this was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, and then goes on to say, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism, as is typical of reformed, a reformed hermeneutic, a reformed understanding of the way that the scripture should be understood. There is an emphasis that we have on the continuity of scripture. So in dispensational theology, there's an emphasis on the discontinuity. That's what's brought to the fore, right? The sine qua non of dispensationalism is the distinction between the church and and Israel. In Reformed theology or covenantal theology, what we're saying is that there is an overarching continuity and we should read scripture in light of that continuity 
recognizing at the same time that the scriptures unfold and go from promise to fulfillment. Okay? This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision. Genesis 17, 9-14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the foreskin of your flesh, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male through your generations, whether born in your house or, brought, or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And I hope you hear the echoes of this, even in what we see in Acts. This promise is for you, right? And for your children. These are, there's a continuity even in the way that these things are expressed. But I want to make a point about the nature of circumcision. Listen to what Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. We need to see that circumcision under the old covenant was spiritual. It always was intended to signify something spiritual. And what is that spiritual reality that circumcision was intended to signify? I will circumcise your heart, right? That you would, right, in order that you would love the Lord your God. Right? The promise for God, of God to Israel was no less than spiritual rebirth. The same thing that we see in the new covenant sign. Right? The cutting off of the flesh is shown in the covenant sign. I mean, we see that even in the New Testament when the New Testament starts speaking about circumcision. Romans 2.28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Paul here isn't explaining a new way to understand circumcision. He's saying this is what circumcision has always meant. No one has ever just been a Jew who is one outwardly. That sign was always supposed to show and be signified by faith. Right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Those signs are speaking of the same spiritual realities. One in promise form, one in fulfillment form. So, so see that correspondence between the sign and the thing signified. It was always to be accompanied by the thing signified. Otherwise, that sign had another edge to it, right? There's, there's the promise side, but there's also the curse side, right? That you see clearly in being cut off. It's... You're cut off from your people. You see that in, re, 
in Israel as they rebelled throughout his history. They were at times cut off, right? Showing that they weren't the true Israel, the, the remnant, those who were trusting their God by faith, those who were improving upon their circumcision. Romans 2.29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God, right? The spiritual thing signified is the work of the Holy Spirit in the old covenant, just as in the new. So then what about baptism then? Heidelberg goes on. Circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Listen to Colossians 2, because it's really important, and I think we have the verses in our minds right now to understand what Colossians 2 is speaking about, even if we have, even as we have those Romans passages in our minds, right? Colossians 2, 11 to 13. In him also you were circumcised, right? Paul talking to Christians under the new covenant. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Does that ring any bells about the, the, what's signified in circumcision? By the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Wait, where did baptism come from? I thought we were talking about circumcision having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dread, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Danny Hyde has a little book about baptism that I like, and I often will give to somebody who is asking questions about baptism. And he summarizes really well here. He says, Our circumcision in baptism is an identification with Christ being circumcised on the cross as he bore the curse of our covenant breaking. He was cut off in order that our transgressions of the covenant might be forgiven and canceled. So when were you circumcised by Christ? In verse 12, the apostle gives the explanation basically saying, you were circumcised when you were baptized. That's the connection that Paul is making right there. You were circumcised, right? He's talking to believers and saying you were circumcised when you were baptized. Which is why Paul can say in Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So, what does that mean? Well, let me give you one more passage, or maybe two, but let me give you uh, one more passage here. This to the Galatians, who, anybody know what the problem with the Galatians was? Circumcision. There was a circumcision problem. Right? Demanding that if you're going to be a Christian, you need to be circumcised too. Here's what Paul says towards the end. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, but new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That new creation that Paul's talking about here that that counts is the new creation that Paul describes in Romans 6.3, which he ties to the sign of new creation, which is baptism. Listen to uh, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That new life, that new creation, is, is a, the sign of it is baptism. That's simply what Paul's saying. And that's really the only point I'm trying to make right now, right? Is that baptism under the new covenant has replaced circumcision. Well, why didn't Paul just say that? <laughs> well, why didn't Paul just say baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant of grace under the new covenant? And I think the answer is he did. He, he did say that. That's what he said, right? You were circumcised when you were baptized. It's right there for you. And the one thing that we need to, re, to, to remember and I make this as another hermeneutical point, similar to the point that we made last time. We need to remember that the scriptures are not a textbook of systematic theology. And the scriptures are not a handbook of church order. In terms of the New Testament, they're occasional letters. Paul's writing to the Galatians because that particular, those particular people needed to hear particular things from an apostle. And we get them too because they're the inscripturated word of God. But that doesn't mean that they're going to answer the question that we have in the way that we have the question. Right? In, in many ways, the system of doctrine that undergirds the teaching of scripture um, needs to be deduced from scripture by good and necessary consequence. Right? There's, there's a whole iceberg of theology that sits under the surface of the water, the little bit sticking up that we call scripture. Right? Paul doesn't pour out everything in his minds about theology and practice. Right? We see it contextualized in pastoral application. But that doesn't mean that those theological points aren't there. It just means we need to do the work that God has for us to do to see that those things are the reasons why Paul's speaking the way that he's speaking. All right, so we've made those points. The children of believers should be baptized. Any questions? Yes. Um, I thought we were going to end early this time. No. <laughs> yeah, can we end early? That was my question. Oh, yeah. Is there a motion to adjourn? So, <laughs> so I, had, uh, I had said I was going to ask you a question. I'm, I'm content with... Uh, the answer that I have to my question, but I have a different question. Okay. So, Acts 15, there's a council 
everybody's going through, like, should we circumcise? Yes, we have to circumcise to be saved. The council says no. Peter comes out very clearly, Paul says very clearly, no. No. Absolutely not. Acts 16, there's a very funny thing that happens. Yeah. And Paul is like, oh, I got Timothy, and his father's a Greek, and I got to go to these places where this is going to be a problem if he's not circumcised. Yeah. So he circumcised them. But in Galatians 5, he says, if you accept circumcision, then Christ is of no benefit. So I just want you to go through that. Now, it could be a timing issue, because I don't know when Galatians 5 is written, but I think it's yeah. much later, right? So it's not a timing issue. Uh, we already know Acts 15, we already decided we don't need circumcision. Acts 16, he says, ah, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. So I, I think... I think one of the things that we need to recognize is the transitional, unique nature of that particular moment in history. Right? This is prior to the completion of the inscripturated word. Right? You still have apostles on the scene. And really you have redemptive history continuing on right? in, that, in that sense that the canon isn't closed yet. What's the reason why Paul says, yes, I'm going to circumcise him. Circumcise him. It's pretty clear. Timothy would have been an offense yeah. to the Jewish... So, so what he's doing is he's essentially taking down one of the possible stumbling blocks so that the real stumbling block could go right in their face. Right? And we do that. We do that when we talk to people. And I don't, that's, not, that's not wrong, Right? So let me give you an example from history. Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great reformer, um, you know, pretty bold in the things that he says. Pretty strong, pretty strong opinions about things, right? So he comes to realize we're worshiping the Lord in a wrong manner, right? The Reformation is really at root about worship. And so he, he looks at the Roman mass and he says, this won't do. So what does he do? He writes up his mass that is based upon his reformed convictions. And he goes the next Sunday and he takes the old mass, throws it away, and he puts his mass there. No, he doesn't. He slowly introduces it. He waits five years before the conviction that he has about what he knows is right actually comes to be the practice of the church. Why? For the sake of those weaker brothers. Right? There's no need to mow them down in that moment. And I think Paul's doing the same thing with Timothy there. And it's the same thing that we, we do when we're trying to minister to somebody. We don't give them... We don't mow them down, right? We... we we, we go in there and, and we try to see what are the things that I have to, how, how I'm going to navigate this, right? What are the things that I must do? What are those things that we can wait for, right? I, I think it's, he's just trying to be a good, good, a good evangelist and a good pastor. Yeah. Paul says, I've become all things to all people mm -hmm. so that by chance I may win some. Yep. I think he's doing just that to me. Yeah. I think that's exactly the case. I think that's exactly the case. 
You know, I'm not going to eat meat sacrificed to idols with these people, even though I know it doesn't, it, there's nothing to it. But I'm not going to because that doesn't need to be the stumbling block. Right. And even that passage in Galatians with Titus says, I don't have Titus circumcised because he's basically trying to force to. Right. Yeah, there's a the, thing that Yeah, yeah, that's a good. It's not even there yet, so I can't force a treatment like the idols. If you, if you eat the meat and have it sacrificed, but nobody's sitting there saying, by the way, I want to let you know if you eat this meat for everybody, it's been sacrificed to idols, it's like, I can't. Right. But if it's like, if it's just meat, then it's like, kind of like, like, yeah. something. Yeah. So I think it kind of comes in that time, too. Yeah. Any other questions? <laughs> All right. Um, thank you. So we'll actually move on then next week um, to Lord's Day. I don't even know what it is anymore. Lord's Day 28. We'll actually move on, Lord willing. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you uh, for your uh, for the fullness of the redemption that you have wrought for us in Jesus. Lord, that we don't live under types and shadows, but we live knowing the fullness of Christ and him crucified. The fullness of the forgiveness of sins and how it is that a holy and just God can pardon iniquity. Can be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the answer is as it's always been. Jesus and him alone. Lord, would you... Uh, even as we think about baptism, as we, even as we think about our own baptisms, Lord, would you cause us to improve upon our baptisms? Lord, that we would take uh, confidence and assurance in your promises, in Christ who has redeemed us. And Lord, that we would respond to those things with greater faith that is wrought by your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.